Hey everyone, this is David Grams with Valiant Ministries International. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I hope it edifies, inspires, and grows you up in God's will for your life. A new episode is published every Wednesday, so be sure to tune in every week. I'd love to know how this ministry is impacting your life, so feel free to let me know by going to valiantmi.com contact or by posting a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at valiantmi.com give. Moving forward now, let's go to Psalms 101. We actually read this last week, and I'm going to review one verse in that that we're going to start our discussion on here. Okay, Psalms 101. Now keep in mind that in everything I'm talking about here, it's, it's a type and shadow of the church. So meaning, if we want there to be miracles, signs, and wonders, God does not withhold that from us. But if we pray for revival, we need to know what it is we're praying for. And we need to know the responsibility that comes along with that revival. And there's actually two things you should write down, just two words that go together with revival that we need to remember. Number one is whenever there's revival, there's also refinement. Secondly, there's responsibility. Refinement and responsibility. Now, we're going to get into detail on that more, but I'm going to show you in Psalms 101 where David actually said that refinement, purification of a people and of a nation, is the prerequisite for glory and prosperity on a kingdom. Okay? So Psalms 101, in we're going to read just verses 7 and 8. So verse 7 of Psalms 101 says, He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Verse 8, here's the key verse. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Okay, so when he's saying destroy the wicked and the evildoers, in a modern context, because of the age of grace that we're in, every time it says wicked, essentially just means sin, or evildoers, evildoing. So our hatred is not against the sinner, but against the sin. You guys have probably heard that many times in your life. So that's what we're going to focus on here. But key word, early. Now, that word early in Hebrew literally means the sun rising in the morning, the dawn of something. So he's essentially saying, at the dawn, the dawn of what? He was probably talking about when he first became king. It was the dawn of a new reign in the land of Israel. So now that I've become king, the first thing I want to do is remove the sin from the camp. Cut off all the evil doing from the city of the Lord. Now, the city of the Lord, Jesus said in Matthew in his... uh, Sermon on the Mount, that we are the city set on a hill. We're the city of the Lord. The Christians, the people of God, are a city. We actually build our own nation, independent from the nations of the world, that the Bible says is to be exalted above every nation on the face of the earth. So we're to be our own people, culturally diverse, but in such close unity that... Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, becomes the model from which every single one of us live. So if we are the city of the Lord, and David says the first thing at the dawn of any move of God, what do I do? Remove the sin from the camp. Now here's why this is important. Tolerated sin. This is anything, and if you actually read through Psalm 101, you'll see how he talks about deceit. He talks about slander, pride. He's actually talking about internal Iniquity, meaning when somebody slanders, that's to criticize. Talk behind someone's back. Haughtiness, that's pride. 
those are the things that he condemns the most. And he's saying if any of that kind of thing is tolerated, if there's gossip, if there's pride, if there's slander among the people, and I don't nip it in the bud before it grows, what's going to happen? It's going to rot the foundation of Israel. So he's saying the city of the Lord, the church, because it's called to be an embassy of heaven whose reputation is not stained by evil, evil, then that means tolerated sin will cause the church to appear as a misrepresentation of God's kingdom. So as soon as sin is left to fester, what does it do? It distorts our identity that we convey to the world. It distorts how we appear to the world. And we talked about last week, I'll remind you again, that one of the things, one of the mistakes that Saul made was that he wanted so bad to fit in with the mingling of Philistines with Israelites in the land that he actually, his kingdom looked more like the kingdoms of the world around him than it did an independent, exalted kingdom of Israel. So as soon as you condone sin, as soon as you tolerate it, as soon as you let things slide to be more relevant, now you're not only an independent nation that's magnified, now you've just become part of everything else and you have lost your influence because now you are no longer the standard that the world is looked to to find the true representation of God's kingdom. So the church, the city of the Lord, is here to be an embassy of heaven. That means the culture of heaven is to be the culture that we cultivate here on earth. And anything that's left tolerated rots that reputation. And that's, that's why this is important. So this is what David was doing. At the dawn, okay, so he says early, at the dawn of any new move of God, the first task always is to purge the people of anything that would undermine or hinder revival. You can hear stories all the time about there is some huge revival that not only sparked, but it blew up. But the leader tolerated something in his life or in the life of those who followed him. And what happened? It just was snuffed out in sometimes weeks or days because somebody condoned something. A really good example is the Welsh Revival in 1901, I believe it started. It was a revival that within the span of about two years, it saw over 100,000 people born again, transformed. And it was going to continue, but the, the leader, Evan Roberts, he didn't give himself enough time to rest. He got an average of like one to two hours of sleep every night these entire two years. And then he had a mental, emotional, and physical breakdown, and he never recovered because he tolerated a lack of rest, which to most of us wouldn't seem sinful because it's not. But it's negligence of the care for his physical body. So it can be something as simple as that. Anything that's left tolerated undermines revival. And that's why David said early, the first thing, the dawn of any new move of God, when God starts something, what's his priority? Purge the people of compromise, of tolerated sin, of condoning anything that would eventually lead to their destruction. So when it comes to this church, when we started in February, we expected, we prayed for God to bring in people who were hungry to being, actually to bring in people who the world would consider misfits, the people that really, really wanted to see revival, who wanted to see signs and wonders. We wanted God to bring in people who actually wanted the truth. But in praying for this, there was a time initially, in the, like a month before we started the church, where I was so excited about being able to start a church that I didn't really recognize the weightiness of responsibility that I was about to accept. 
And this is when the Lord started to teach me, look, if you want revival, I'll give it, and I'm glad to, but early, at the dawn, the people need to be purged. Otherwise, revival is going to be snuffed out before it starts to even grow the way I want it to. Okay, let's go back to those two things I told you earlier, refinement and responsibility. So when you look at in the next scripture we're going to go to, you can pull this up in your Bible. We won't read it yet, but Acts chapter 4, verse 32 is where we're going to go next. You can just kind of keep your finger there if you're using your phone, whatever. Acts 4, 32. So refinement and responsibility. Now when you look at the dawn of the church of Christianity, 33 AD, Jesus rises again from the dead. 40 days he spends with the disciples, ascends to heaven, says 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come and you'll be endued with power from on high. Revival sparks, it begins. The first sermon that Peter preaches, 3,000 people come to Jesus and it says daily the Lord was adding to the church those who were being saved. Huge revival. Huge, huge revival. And the Bible says that God wants the latter rain to be greater than the former rain. So revival now, the condition of the church now is supposed to be greater than what was seen in Acts because Acts was just the dawn. We're at the point where we're almost at the crescendo now. And the revival you saw in Acts, sometimes Christians forget that the weight of glory on the early church actually killed some people, like literally killed them. One of them was Herod. He was King Herod who was reigning in Jerusalem during the time that the early church was growing. He stands on this pedestal to give a speech and the people start shouting the voice of God and not man. And he sort of soaks in the pride and the exaltation and, it, and actually says that the angel of the Lord then came and struck him down and then worms ate his body. God killed Herod because he wanted to take the place of God in Jerusalem. Now, that's Old Testament stuff, it seems, to most Christians. Because you read the Old Testament, it's like God striking people down and like wiping out nations. And it's like, what happened to grace? <laughs> you get into the New Testament. And we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira here. Now, the reason why we're going to do that, for those of you who don't know who that is, I'll explain. But basically, when you look at the progression of the early church, as power increases, so does the severity of the consequences when that power is abused. So the more that revival increases, the more devastating it is when somebody exploits the grace of God in that revival. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 5. Now, this is the New Testament. This is the age of grace. It's the age of the church. Now, if we're going to pray for God to move and to change his people, to transform us, to endue us with power so that we see signs and wonders, what's going to happen? Yes, revival is going to come. It'll increase. There's going to be power. There's going to be signs and wonders. But guess what? If people died in the early church for taking advantage of God's glory, what makes us think it can't happen now? There's no reason for us to say that it couldn't. So we just have to be honest about this. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat any of this because it's just the truth. And this is the age of grace. But stuff like this does happen on a rare occasion. There's even, you can, if you just do a search on the internet, you can find stories of people who literally died because of taking advantage of God. And it, it does happen. It's rare, but it does happen. So, okay, we can go to this, this passage in Acts 4 now. Verse 32. So we're going to kind of 
We had a foundation here. We're going to read about the condition of the early church, the glory, the miracles. Verse 32, Acts 4, verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believe, this is the Christians in the early church, were of one heart, one soul. There's the unity. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great power. And what? Great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked... For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, distributed to each one as anyone had need. I'll skip to chapter 5, verse 1. So it's saying the early church, they believed, they were in unity. There was a universal generosity among the people, there was great power, and there was grace. Conditions for revival. But now verse 1 of chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias. Now, before I read this, what Peter just said was a word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit revealed to Peter the deceit that was in Ananias. Now, the Bible says the gifts of the Spirit are for our edification. Sometimes we avoid rebuke because we don't think it's edifying. Peter just straight up called out Ananias for his lying by a word of knowledge that God told him. Rebuke is necessary for edifying the church. Can't be avoided. Confrontation is critical for us being edified. Because in order for something to be strengthened, to grow stronger, there has to be leaders, people, ultimately all of us, who are willing to say the truth. And you'll actually notice that when Peter ended up rebuking Ananias and Sapphira, and as the story ends, it actually says, great fear came upon the church. But then it says, but they continued to multiply. How is it that the church could be afraid but also be multiplying at the same time? Christian after Christian after Christian. People are coming to Jesus. At the same time, they're afraid. Now, that's a phrase that means the fear of the Lord. They were so moved with reverence and awe for the consequences of lying to the Holy Spirit that they wouldn't even get close to that. Wouldn't even touch it. So the fear of the Lord upon the church purified them, refined them, and caused them to multiply. The word of knowledge is for edification, but that necessitates that there be rebuke. Because without rebuke, there's no fear of the Lord. There's no accountability. If there's no accountability, there's nothing that will keep us strong and secure. So just keep in mind that if you want God to give you the gifts of the Spirit, words of knowledge, that means He's going to try and prod you. Hey, if you know somebody who's living a way that they shouldn't and you're not willing to, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying judge them, criticize them. I'm saying sometimes rebuke is necessary. And in the church, you've got a Christian, somebody you know who's named the name of Jesus. Sometimes God may speak to you, give you a hint, a reminder about maybe something they're doing, and you'll think, oh, that's not God because God wouldn't expose their sin. God just did that. He literally told Peter, this person's in sin. It's a word of knowledge. So don't disregard that. Now, I didn't plan on saying that, but I feel like that was necessary. Anyway, okay, so Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Verse, verse 3, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
Verse 5, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it happened about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. He's just prophesying the death of a person. Goodness. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Verse 12. But the revival keeps going. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Revival keeps going, doesn't stop. In fact, it gets stronger. Peter, by a word of knowledge, calls out sin in the church, prophesies the death of Ananias' wife, Sapphira. What in the world? That doesn't happen, at least not that I know of in the church today. I've never heard of that happening in a modern context, but it happened. Now, do I believe God killed Ananias and Sapphira? No, I don't think so. Here's what I think happened. The glory on the early church was so heavy, it was so thick, that when, they, when their own wrongs, when their tolerated sin was exposed, the conviction that came upon them was so weighty that their physical body just gave up and died. I don't think God killed them. He didn't have to. The fear of the Lord was so strong that their physical body could not handle it because the glory was so heavy, and they died. Heavy glory without a strong, refined structure will lead to a devastating collapse. Ananias and Sapphira, their death was a devastating collapse because they didn't have a strong, refined structure of integrity. I'll say this again. Heavy glory without a strong, refined structure will lead to a devastating collapse. For Ananias and Sapphira, the conviction that they felt for abusing the grace and glory of God was so heavy that it killed them. And here was ultimately their error. Now, if you look at what Ananias and Sapphira did, it's like they sold their houses like everyone else was. They just didn't give the apostles all the money. They just gave them some, some of it. And you're like, that doesn't seem very bad. And the act itself was not, but it was the heart motive behind it. So here, here's ultimately what their error was. They deceived themselves into believing that joining the movement could be accomplished by donating, donating their resources but not surrendering their lives. They deceived themselves into believing that joining the movement could be accomplished by donating their resources but not surrendering their lives. They still had a hidden agenda, their own priorities. When God calls the church Christians to join the revival, that he wants to break out all over the world. He doesn't ask you to surrender your financial don donations to the movement. That's just a small part of it. He wants your life. He wants your body, spirit, and soul. He wants all of you. And here's the truth. Any part of you that you don't surrender to the purpose of God ends up being prone to decay. What does that mean? Something that doesn't get used the way it was designed to ends up rotting. It's called being derelict, where... Uh, the word derelict means something that's in poor condition because of neglect or misuse. 
We were created to be instruments for righteousness, is what Romans 6 says. So if you give your spirit, soul, and body, you surrender everything you are to be used by God, everything about you, every part of you is enhanced and empowered. But anything you don't surrender to Jesus will decay. An example of this would be in Haggai chapter 1. You guys definitely should read about this. Haggai chapter 1 is a book of the, the Old Testament and the prophets, where it says the people were neglecting to give their finances to the building of the temple. And because they neglected the purpose of God for their money, they had holes in their pockets. Their field, their crops weren't growing. They were losing money. There were thieves that were coming in and stealing. And they're like, why are we losing all our money? I thought we were doing okay. And God said, it's because you're neglecting the purpose of God to build the temple. So anything that you don't surrender to the purpose and calling of your existence is prone to decay. It will rot. It, it'll feel like it's like everything I do turns to dust. And I don't understand why. It's decaying because it's, it's not being used. It's being neglected. It's not being used for its intended purpose. I want to read this, this phrase again. Joining the movement. They deceive themselves into believing that joining the movement could be accomplished by donating the resources, but not surrendering their lives. Ananias and Sapphira didn't give up their lives for Christ, so they lost their lives. Now, one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 16, the call of discipleship, he said, Anyone who desires to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The death of Ananias and Sapphira is essentially a really extreme form of what Jesus said in that passage in Matthew. They tried to save their lives. They tried to withhold part of themselves for their own agenda. Because they tried to save their lives, they ended up losing their lives. Literally, they died. Now, I want to see revival. I want to see God's power break out. I want there to be miracles happening in the lives of every single person in this room and more, every believer in the church. I want us to be exalted. I want us to be magnified. I want the world to see that the Holy Spirit is upon us. I want to see God prepare, the ta prepare a table before us to demonstrate his favor upon the Christian church. I want that to take place. But I know now, and he knows, that if we are going to pray for that, and if we receive everything he has to give, if we say, God, I want your fullness, everything you have to give, what's going to happen? He'll give it. But the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. He's extremely powerful. His love is amazing. But because it's so po powerful, it's also very, very dangerous if you play with it. it. Happened in the Old Testament and it happened in the New Testament. God's character has been the same in the Old and the New Testament. God is, will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if the Holy Spirit was holy in the Old Testament, he's holy in the New Testament too. You take something holy, profane it, abuse it, twist it, or distort it. That is very... Devastating consequences. And that's never going to change. Yes, we're in an age of grace, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the natural consequences of our abuse of God's glory aren't going to come. Now, it was a good thing that this happened to Ananias and Sapphira, not for them, but for the rest of the church. Because that rebuke leading to the consequences brought the fear of the Lord upon the church that kept them safe and secure. Because they knew from that point forward, wow, if that's the consequence of not surrendering my life, I think I want to be all in. There wasn't, another, there wasn't another option. There was no, 
riding the fence. There was no naming Jesus but not living him. There was no such thing as calling yourself a Christian, checking a box on a government paper that says I identify as Christian. That didn't even exist in the early church. Why? Because they believed that if that was the condition of my life, the consequences might end up in my death. Great fear came upon the church. Now, if you look at the, the way that the church grows and how it progresses and how it increases, and, and you can read about this, it says that the church in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. Fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit. There was more reverence and awe on the New Testament church than there ever was on anyone in the Old Testament. Why? For reasons that are very clear if you just think about it properly. When you have, actually this is the way that God's, the way that it's written in Hebrews. At Mount Sinai, Old Testament, right? God comes upon this mountain with his thunder and lightning, speaks in a booming voice as the sound of a trumpet, many waters. And he literally proclaims the Ten Commandments, all of his laws before the Israelites, a loud voice. And it says the Israelites were so afraid they wouldn't even come close to the mountain. They backed off and they're like, we don't want to hear God anymore because it's terrifying. Talk about fear, right? If that happened to any of us. Now, in Hebrews it says, the Israelites, in a way, had an excuse to avoid God because his presence appeared as something terrifying. In the New Testament, because God has shown himself to be gracious, loving, and merciful, we have absolutely no excuse to avoid him. So to take advantage of grace is a worse offense than to disobey the law in the Old Testament. And it actually says, Hebrews chapter 10, I believe it's verses, verse 29 through 32. It says, everyone who rejects Moses' law in the Old Testament dies without mercy on the account of one or two witnesses. And then he says, for us, right now, of how much worse punishment do you think he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? He said, taking advantage of God's grace and glory now is a worse offense than disobeying Moses' law in the Old Testament. Because there's so much grace on the church, the consequences are greater when you exploit it. And a lot of Christians don't understand that. Now that there's greater grace, forgiveness has extended as mercy is everlasting, and there is no sin, whether past, present, or future, that Jesus Christ hasn't paid for. That's absolutely true. But because that's true now, in, in order to actually take advantage of that grace, you have to have a more malicious heart than anyone in the Old Testament. And that's exactly why Ananias and Sapphira suffer this kind of consequence. They had this hidden agenda, this ulterior motive, this selfish heart. They wanted the benefits of the revival, but they didn't accept the responsibility of it. Same thing happened to King Saul. He wanted the glory, the promotion of the kingship, but he wouldn't fully accept the responsibility of the calling to actually be a leader over a kingdom that was to represent heaven itself. So wherever there's revival, I already mentioned, refinement and responsibility. Refinement meaning if you want revival, God's going to refine you. He's going to purge you, chaff, or the, the fire of God that burns the chaff out of your life. We talked about that last week. And there's going to be a refinement, and alongside that, there needs to be acceptance, full acceptance of the responsibility. 
period. Now, at the same time when you're thinking about this, it's like, man, God sounds kind of scary. No, he's, he's not. He is so, so amazing. He loves us so much. He's so gracious. But if you really, really adore him and admire him for his love, you will never take advantage of it. He's too good to do that. And that's why in Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's what it says. The more you know grace, the more awestruck you'll, you'll be in recognition of who God is. The more that grace increases, when there's great grace upon the people, there's also great fear of the Lord. Because the more good that God is, the more evil it appears to abuse that grace or that goodness. So if you want reverence to increase in your life, the best way to do it is to learn how good God is. Because the more you know his love, the more you know how gracious he is, you're just, oh, he's so amazing. Why would I ever want to take advantage of that? Same thing happened with Joseph in the house of Potiphar, where Joseph is serving as an Egyptian slave in the house of Potiphar as the captain of the guard to Pharaoh. And it says that Potiphar gave everything he owned to the management of Joseph. So basically he said, Joseph, you're responsible for everything I own, every horse, every sheep, every cow, everything I own, every piece of gold and silver, everything I own is now in your hands. Now, not once did Joseph take advantage of that. He didn't steal any money. He didn't take anything that belonged to Potiphar. And when Potiphar's wife, you guys probably know this story, Potiphar's wife came to Joseph to tempt him into the sexual immorality. And Joseph said, no. He said, why, why would I do that when Potiphar has given all this into my hands in his, good, in his grace? He actually said, knowing how good Potiphar has been to me is exactly what's motivating me not to exploit that goodness. So why would I sin like this? If you want to see a Christian who has a pure and a clean life, the thing that keeps them in that place is that they're just fervently in love with God. Being legalistic, that doesn't keep anybody pure. That just makes people guilt-ridden. Just magnifies flaws, magnifies sin. And it makes people disgusted with themselves. It makes them see themselves as a failure waiting, waiting to happen. So they wake up in the morning expecting to fail, expecting to do something terrible, and then they feel guilty over it. And their entire relationship with God is occupied with apology instead of communion or fellowship with God. And they don't actually know intimacy. They don't know real relationship because they think the only thing that God is looking for is their incessant confession and penitence. And that's the way it was under the law of Moses. That's not the way it should be now. So if you want this life, this revival, however you want to define it, yes, there'll be refinement. Yes, there needs to be acceptance of the responsibility for that revival. But I don't want this to become something that moves you into legalism or guilt over your life. It should never be that way. Because if you want this to take place, the key to it is just being in love. Period. That's it. And I'm going to pull up a verse in Psalm 101 where we started here that will kind of summarize this. And this is what I'll end with here, probably. <laughs> Psalm 101. Let's go back to Psalm 101. Yeah. Psalm 101, verse 2. 101, verse 2. It says, I will behave wisely 
in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Okay. The end of verse 2 where it says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. That perfect heart doesn't mean morally pure. Perfect there in Hebrew means a heart that's actually full, complete, replete, meaning there isn't room for sin because it's so full of God. That's what the word means. A perfect heart, a full heart is what the Hebrew word actually means. So here's what David's saying. The work of those who fall away in verse 3, that's anything sinful. Actually, the word means derelict. It means misuse or neglect. That kind of sinful work won't stick to me because my heart's already full. So he's not saying my palace and my kingdom is pure because I was passionate against sin. He said, I was passionate for God. My heart is so full of him. Sin, sin doesn't have any room to stick. There's, a no, there's no vacancy on his life. There isn't room left. You don't get rid of sin in your life by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and white-knuckling it out of your life. That doesn't work. If you're not full, if there's room left, sin can pretty much do whatever it wants. The lack of intimacy, the lack of love, lack of relationship, not being fully secure, complete, and satisfied in Jesus is what gives room for sin to get into your life. And that's what David is saying here. So if there's to be this passionate zeal that drives sin out, if there's to be this reverence, this great fear of the Lord that makes sure people don't end up abusing God's glory, how does that happen? People have to have a full heart. Sin cannot attract someone who is complete and content in Christ. Just last, this past Thursday, my dad and I were at St. Cloud Prison, and we, we do a service there. And it's, it's kind, of, kind of a personal testimony in a way, because especially when, when we go to this prison, I usually don't have a whole lot of prayerful preparation specifically for that during the week. I mean, one of the things that Smith Wigglesworth said was that I don't pray longer than five minutes, but I don't go five minutes without praying. And so I'm supposed to always be in a place of communion and fellowship with Holy Spirit, and I understand that that's ultimately my preparation. But when it came to actually just specifically getting ready for this, this prison service, I wasn't practically that prepared, and so I got there, and I didn't know what I was going to preach, but in the car on the way there, the Lord told me, Acts chapter 2, he said, I want you to preach that, and, and so I said, okay. So I get up there, and I start doing this message. I just read Acts chapter 2, about half of the chapter, and then I just start saying a few things, and I kid you not, it's so weird how this happens. It's just how the Holy Spirit does it, but I was <laughs> preaching so fast and there was a couple times in there where I had to stop and like take a breath because I, I, didn't, I didn't take time to breathe, literally. And we went through this whole, essentially, exposition of why Jesus died, rose again, how going to heaven is not the objective of salvation. And I explained this to these prisoners. And the whole time, it was like everybody in the room was in a trance. And it was so weird. And I remember getting done, taking a breather, and being like, goodness gracious, that... Blew me away. Like I, there's been times where I'll, I'll do a message or do some kind of ministry, and it feels like it's not me even doing it. You guys 
may know what I'm talking about there, where it's like something overtakes you, possesses you, and it's like he like God replaces you in that moment, and it's 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 weird, but it's powerful. So that's essentially what happened. So I get through this message, and one of the things that I told them at the end of the message was that, and in fact, I should say kind of as a preface here, that one of the things that you find with people, the, the guys, the men that are in this prison scenario, is that they're afraid of being tempted again with the very thing that got them in prison. And they're penitent, they're repentant, they're like, I, I want to be in love with Jesus. And they say, but I'm afraid that when I get out of here, the world's going to entice me again, and I'll fall, I'll stumble. And they're afraid of it. And it breaks my heart because they're giving power to sin by fearing it. And one of the things I said at the end of this message was, look, you guys, Jesus said you're not of the world anymore, and the world cannot attract something that doesn't share its nature. James chapter 1 says that God cannot be tempted by evil. Can't. Can't even be tempted by evil. And if God has inhabited you and you are one spirit with him, and if you're a partaker of the divine nature, which is what 2 Peter 1, 4 says, you've actually taken on the nature of God. And if God can't be tempted, that means the God part of you can't be tempted either. So I said, guys, the problem is not that you're in the world with opportunity to be enticed. I said, the problem is that you still think part of you is of the world. You're giving opportunity to the world to tempt and allure you because you simply have a self-image of sin. You think you're still of the world. Even if you believe your spirit's been made new, you still, in the back of your mind, are like, but there's still like this devil on my shoulder that's driving me to do these things and be tempted. And they're afraid of a sinful nature that's dead and buried. They, I mean, the Bible says you don't, they don't actually have a sinful nature anymore. They just have a mind that hasn't learned to think in agreement with who they've become in Christ. And so I, I remember just emphasizing, you guys, you don't need to be afraid of sin. You just need to simply understand and believe you're not a sinner anymore. You don't have a nature of the world that's like this magnetism between you and the world. That is not part of your life anymore. You are not of the world. You don't share its nature. So the world cannot attract you. You just simply believe it can. And so when it came to, to kind of tie this in, in the end here, when it's saying you got to have a full heart, part of that is the understanding that now that you are in Christ, truly, there really isn't any room for sin in you. Your spirit's complete. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. That means completely full, replete, fully furnished, no room for anything. That's what it says. That's your identity. You're already full in him. But I have to believe that. You have to believe that. You have to take on a self-image. You have to train your mind to understand and believe that I am not of the world. I have no stain or memory of sin on me anymore. There is no like nature of a magnet that is drawing me to this other magnet of the world. This, and in fact, one of the illustrations I use with these prisoners is that if you have a magnet and another one, magnets can only attract another magnet or a piece of metal that that magnet has contacted. So a magnet can't attract something that doesn't share its nature. So if you're not of the world, why do you think the world can attract you or draw you or tempt you or entice you? You're not of it anymore. You're not a magnet. So why do you think it can? there is no draw? But I have to understand and believe that.
So when it comes to realizing, look, yes, I'm seeking intimacy with God. Yes, I'm pursuing Him. Yes, I need to be satisfied in being in love. But I will be limited in my pursuit of Him if I don't also believe that Christ has finished His work of redemption in me. I am a child of God. I am a finished work. The Bible does not say I'm a work in progress. It doesn't say that. It says I've been perfected already. And once I see that, I'll look in the mirror and see Jesus in my eyes and I'll realize all these years I believed I was still of the nature of fallen Adam. I believed I was still this worm in the dirt. I still believed that blah, 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 whatever. And the problem was never that God didn't do something. The problem was that I just didn't believe what he had done. So yes, seek intimacy with him, but there has to be that foundation laid in identity first. We understand who you already are, and then you're pursuing God from a healthy position. Otherwise, you're going to seek him to get something out of him, and you'll spend your entire life bound when you should be free, not because what's been spoken up here, what's said in the word isn't true, but just because your position from which you were chasing God was unstable to begin with. One of the things I, I've mentioned a number of sermons ago when we first started the church was that every step you take closer to God with an attitude of obligation is actually a step backward. Meaning, if you're seeking a relationship because you feel pressured, obligated, or like you have to, otherwise God won't approve of you, that's a step backward. Because every step you try to take closer to Him is one with an attitude of, of disapproval, of fear, of self-abnegation. And that will hurt you. In order to pursue God, the starting point has to be healthy. You have to know He already approves of you. He already has chosen and accepted you from before the foundation of the world. In fact, the Bible says that God chose you in Christ to be holy and blameless, and He saw you that way before He made anything. So before the world was created, He never saw your sin. He just saw holy and blameless. He saw who you would become. So why do we think if God sees the end from the beginning, why do we think that He's so focused on our present flaws when He chose us to be holy and blameless before we were in our mother's womb, before He created the world, before He created anything? Before the universe was ever in existence, He saw us as His children who are completely purified, justified, glorified. He saw us for who we would become in Christ. He never saw the sin. And if He forgot it and cast into the depth of the sea, there's no reason for me to remind Him of my sins ever again. So actually, in your pursuit of God, sin is removed from the equation entirely. You're not, even, you're not supposed to think about it. You're not supposed to talk to God about it. When you make a mistake, you're not supposed to incessantly confess, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He's not thinking about that. That's paid for. That's gone. Confession is about you acknowledging a wrong so you can receive correction. It's not about you trying to get God to approve of you more. It has nothing to do with that. So don't talk about sin to God. He doesn't want to talk about that. He never saw it in you when he predestined you to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. He never saw any of that. So once I understand that, that that's my identity, that he's chosen, I'm accepted, and his beloved child, now that starting place is laid, I am in a healthy position to pursue him, and not for one day after that will I ever be guilty, ashamed, obligated, or afraid. You pursue God that way, then you'll have a full heart. Oh my goodness, you'll have a full heart. And there won't be room in your life for anything less than that, 